Yeah, that's satisfying. It's enriching, especially when you do that and those with whom you shared that come back to you and let you know how much it meant to them. And that reward, if you will, is probably the most satisfying reward that that you can have when someone says, because of what you said or did or that I saw, that caused me to do that or this thing, and I'm better off for it. I've been enriched by it. That is absolutely self-satisfying. It takes the place of so many other things that you used to think may have been what brought you satisfaction. And you say, wow, that really wasn't what it was. It was, it was knowing that the impact that what you did, said, demonstrated, impacted positively the actions, attitudes, accomplishments, achievements of someone else. Sometimes you know it, many times you don't. But if you go around, go about doing what you do in a way that that's what your objective is, then I think that gives you a heightened degree of satisfaction as well. The good news is when that becomes the essence of who you are, then you're doing it subconsciously. You don't even know it. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Kip Ward is a retired four-star general who, among other things, was the first leader of the Africa Command. He shares some of his background in the audio so you can hear it directly from him. I met him through previous guest Frances Hesselbein at her birthday and watched a few videos in which he spoke on leadership. He spoke of many things that I don't see in sustainability and in environmental leadership, but that work, so I wanted to bring them here. You can hear them in his words, and I'll put the link to watch the videos in the text, so watch them there. But some of them include addressing the conditions that led to a situation, not just looking at a situation for what it is, but what led to it. Good, effective governance through sustained efforts, which he contrasts with technology or authority. And regarding authority, for authority and force to be the last option, despite it being what he was trained in and what he did to reach that level. Understanding the society and the people that you want to lead. Their interests and views drive all that you do. You have to know your team, your goals, but their goals, their interests drive strategy. Get to know people and what matters to them. That means listening. And do yourself what you expect them to do. That's what I took going into this conversation. Here's Kip Ward to hear him speaking with his experience on these things. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with General Kip Ward. General, or Kip, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Good to be with you, Josh. And for the record, I asked ahead of time, is Kip okay? And he said yes. <laughs> I heard you on, I think it was November 1st, for former guest Francis Hesselbein, a great mentor of mine. Uh, it was her birthday online, and I heard you speak and looked you up. I'm going to put a link for everyone. Everyone, if they pause right now and go to watch a couple of videos of you speaking, I think it'll give good background to this conversation. I heard you speaking on things like security and stability and instability as a, well, in many different roles, a four-star general, the initial person in AFRICOM, in the Africa Command. And you said some things that were, I think, if we'd taken security and stability and replaced that with sustainability and stewardship, almost all of what you said would be perfect. And no one in the area of sustainability and security and and, um, stewardship is saying these things. I guess I should give the listeners some background. Can you share a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind? Well, uh, I'll be brief. Uh, I spent 40 years as a 
as an officer of the United States Army uh, after graduating from, from college in 1971 and uh, spent my initial, oh, I'd say 20 <coughs> years or so doing traditional things in the military. I was an infantryman. So I commanded uh, formations of infantry soldiers at every level, uh, platoon, company, uh, battalion, progressively more people in each of these formations. As a colonel, uh, full colonel, commanded a brigade, uh, deployed my brigade to Somalia for Operation Restore Hope. It gave me the first experience that was kind of apart from the traditional things that I had been doing in the military as an infantry uh, leader and soldier. And then following that, uh, promoted to uh, general, my first assignment, and then became involved in other things as well in the joint and combined world, working on the joint staff, uh, working uh, in the NATO environment, uh, working in the combined environment where I'm working with not just Army personnel, but also service members from the other branches, Air Force, Navy, Marine, Coast Guards, civilians having an assignments that took me out of the army per se and had me into more some of the diplomatic roles uh, or working in an embassy uh, in, in Egypt, uh, working uh, uh, directly for the Secretary of State at one assignment uh, in Israel, working with Israelis in a Palestinian authority, uh, and then working uh, to stand up a brand new combatant command, uh, which was United States Africa Command, where it was an interagency organization promoting stability but in my particular role, right, being responsible for all the Department of Defense activities that were occurring uh, on the uh, African continent and its Indian Ocean island nations. And each progressive assignment, more and more bringing to my realization that when it came to security, when it comes to creating a more stable global commons, the things that were important in that construct were things beyond the traditional things that I would had grown up being exposed to as a soldier, i.e. weapons, you know, formations of soldiers, sailors, airmen, marine, bring force to bear to create stability. It became very apparent to me that when it came to creating long-lasting stability, there were other things that needed to be present to create that. And that was where some of the partners that we were working with had very substantial roles, but roles that weren't always put forth as, as bedrock requirements to indeed create the long-term stability that we would want to see in our world. And so I became and still still am an advocate for these other activities that will create long-term stability uh, that we seek across uh, our global environment. And I want to ask you about what to do there, but now I have to ask a couple of personal things too. Because I remember hearing you say that when you started in the military, there's no way you could have expected that you'd be in for so long. And yet the pride that you speak, I'm hearing pride, I'm hearing satisfaction. And I've heard you speak about um, everyone who serves and wears the uniform. How did this happen that you, I mean, do you know, because I've talked to some people, like they knew when they were born that they were going to do something and they did it for the rest of their lives and you discovered it, but it it sure sounds like it was always a part of you. Well, uh, I would say that it was not always a part of me. Uh, when I first entered uh, college in 1967, we're in the middle, middle of Vietnam going on. Uh, the draft was there. and uh, But I, uh, my mom and my dad wanted me to have a college education. They did not have one, but they wanted their son to have a college education. And at that time, in order to stay in college, I had to continue with my reserve officer training corps program. 
uh, at Morgan State University in Baltimore because at least that way I could get my college education. And if I were to wind up going to Vietnam, then I would go as an officer. But the important thing was to finish my college education. And in order to do that and not be drafted, I had to remain in the ROTC, the Reserve mm-hmm. Officers Training Corps program. My last two years, I was fortunate to receive a scholarship uh, that, that helped pay for my last two years of school. That scholarship entailed a commitment. It was a four-year commitment uh, for those two years that the Army uh, paid for my last two years of college. But my intent was to uh, do my commitment and then leave the Army. And candidly, I was going to go to law school. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the four-year mark, I found myself in in Korea commanding an infantry company. Well, I wasn't getting out of the Army then. And what I was doing was something that I felt was making a difference. I enjoyed being with that team leading that that company of, of infantrymen, uh, infantry soldiers, about 150 folks assigned to the company. I was a leader. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed what, what I was doing. I th- felt as, a, as if I was making a difference. And the Army rewarded me for that in a way by following that assignment. I came back to the States, my family, my wife, uh, small son at the time, and uh, went to an advanced course there in Fort Benning, Georgia. But in a after that, the Army said, well, uh, you've already commanded a company, and I'm very thankful that I, I was pretty good at it, had, had, had done well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Army said, well, you've done those things, and we think there's an opportunity that you, we have for you to uh, get an advanced degree and go be an instructor at the Military Academy at West Point. So the Army sent me to graduate school for a couple of years, uh, incurred an additional obligation of service because of having, but then going to West Point and teaching in political science. Uh, public policy for three and a half years at West Point. And so as each of these events are occurring, then another promotion would come, then another mm-hmm. school assignment. And as time would move on before I knew it, I was at my 10-year mark, then 15-year mark. It's a while, you know, this is just going along. And importantly, uh, my wife, and, and then by then we've had a second child, a, a daughter. My kids didn't mind that lifestyle. In fact, they also enjoyed it and liked it. And so it was not a burden on them as we did what we did. And before I knew it, I'd hit the 20-year mark, and things are still moving. Got promoted to Brigadier General, and things continue to move. So it just occurred because of how the assignments, my performance, and importantly, the level of satisfaction and support that I received uh, from my family with respect to uh, what I was doing. Sounds like they knew how to, they knew how to catch you. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they identified something in you. So you talked about at your 20-year mark, you were Brigade Commander. And if I'm saying this right, and you realized that what you had learned to that point was not what you needed to do at this point. And what you knew up until that point, as I understand, was infantry fighting and something changed. Can you give me more background on that? Well, it came to roost uh, initially. Uh, I had been in the Army 22 years. I had just been selected. I was a brigade commander and I went to Florida to assist with the hurricane Andrew relief operations in Florida. And I saw a devastation in, in my country uh, that was unlike anything I'd seen before. I mean, that, that hurricane just absolutely uh, devastated Florida. Uh, and we were there to provide relief support, you know, to help uh, obviously reestablish uh, an environment that the people there in South Florida could regain and recapture some of what would have been taken away because of the force of that terrible hurricane. And that went on for a couple of three months, and it was fine. We did that and went back to Fort Drum, New York. And within a matter of two months or so, 
Somalia happened. And my brigade, we were deploying again to go to Somalia for Operation Restore Hope, which is a a humanitarian relief mission to help uh, the humanitarian situation there in Somalia. Uh, And our mission was to separate these warring parties to provide security so that the those who were delivering humanitarian assistance could, in fact, do that in an environment that was safe. Well, in order to make that environment safe, obviously, my soldiers and, and others as well did what we did to provide security. And that was happening. But once that secure environment had been established, there were other things that were required that would keep these warring parties from going back to what they were doing to create this, creating this havoc. Mm-hmm. And those additional requirements were things that were needed to be done by someone else other than my soldiers and I were doing. And so we, there were humanitarian agencies there, World Food Program, Doctors Without Borders, various non-governmental organizations that were there uh, to provide support, uh, United Nations activities, uh, our United States Agency for International Development, our Department of State. And it was very, very plain to me that the things that were needed to be guarantors of long-term security were the things that that these people were doing. Mm-hmm. And if these things were in place and in place effectively, the state that we found when we got there may not have even come about. And so it was the work that they were doing that was so important. I went to Bosnia uh, a bit later on as a as a NATO commander, commanding a NATO force, 23 different countries in Bosnia, a bit after the, the war in Bosnia, but still in a rebuilding stabilization period. In fact, my mission was called the Stabilization Force in Bosnia. And again, in that stabilization, I wasn't being uh, carried out by the forces arms. It was being carried out by the work of these other eight activities, these developmental activities, these activities that looked at how to make governance issues better so that people were being governed in a more effective way by their by their leaders. And all of that caused me to see that when you talk about long term stability, it was these sorts of activities that created that you know, economic development that made a difference for the people where they were. Not something that maybe made sense to me, but understanding that environment well enough such that the things that were being done by these agencies and these activities helped create a more stable environment because they were addressing the base needs of the people that needed to be there, that, well, that lived there, and it kept nefarious actors, if you will, from coming in and taking advantage of them in their periods of vulnerability. So stability required those sorts of things as opposed to the last resort that I would bring to the, to the table. Because hopefully if these other things are being done and being done well, there would not be a need for what I was, had been trained to do. Now, I was also very realistic enough to understand that we needed to be, to be prepared for that, to be sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, because uh, there, there sometimes that's, that is the last resort. But to be sure, if we don't have to utilize that last resort, we're much better off and not doing so is certainly uh, less expensive. It saves lives and it ultimately creates the environment that is more sustaining and has a greater potential of being uh, stable over the long haul. And so it, it began with that experience of uh, to, to a degree in South Florida, but very substantially in Somalia and then reinforced in the Balkans reinforcing what I saw in the Middle East, work with the Israelis and the Palestinians, and reinforcing what I saw as I worked in various parts or different parts of the continent of Africa as well. It just continued to be reinforced. What I'm hearing, I think what I'm hearing top of various different things, but one of them is that you're, if you're looking for stability, if you're looking for security, 
It's the people that are there that are going to be there after you're gone. Their interests, their concerns, that's what's driving everything. You're aware of what you have, your training, what you're good at. You're aware of the NGOs around you, but all of that serves them. Am I, am I reading that right? Uh, you're reading exactly right. Uh, uh, that is so critical. And I, I use a little metaphor uh, that I it, it still use today. You have to see things not from your position. I use the term the foxhole. Everyone knows who Beetle Bailey is. You know, Beetle Bailey, the cartoon, he he digs a foxhole and you get it and you see the world from your foxhole. And sometimes that lens, that, that, that viewpoint, that view is not the view that will make a difference in what you really want to have happen. You have to see it from the perspective of those who are there as well. And, uh, and the first thing in that regard is to listen to them, to understand for them so that what you're doing is complementary to what they see for themselves as what's best for them. Not what you tell them, not what you say them. You're not there to preach. And that was one of the things I I would always take to it. An environment I went to, understand the environment as best you can. And you get that from listening to the people that you're trying to serve so that what you do, your activities, it makes sense to them. And then in fact, when you do that, it helps them even more so because they take ownership of it. And by and large, most folks, uh, most people, uh, if they have ownership in something, they take ownership of it. They're more protective of it. They want to safeguard it in a way that's that's more long lasting and uh, their activities to support it are more more apt to be productive as opposed to just going through the motions. So to be sure, uh, doing things based on their interests, their understanding and the good news in all of this, where I would reconcile it all, because when it came to these interests, the common interest that we all have is let's have a more stable environment. We all can agree upon that. I mean, we all say, and how we get there may be different, but if we get, if we get there by taking those who have a role and making it happen such that they take ownership in their activities to create that more stable environment, then the likelihood that we all achieve are achieving success is skyrocketing. You know, when I listened to your talk before, I was in my head substituting stability, security, or substituting sustainability and stewardship. But here you actually said stable environment. I mean, you weren't just talking about natural environment, but the word actually applies in both cases. That's and right. I feel like a lot of people in the environment are like, this is the science. This is what we have to do. Like we have this timeline. This is the things that we can do. So this is what you have to do. You, you have to do what you have to do. Whether or not the person wants to do it, whether or not it makes sense to the person. And I sure it would be great if everyone did that, but not everyone wants to. Yeah. And now I'm curious, two big questions. Did you always know this or did you learn it through experience? And was that hard? And then the other is, okay, so you want to learn, you want to listen, but how do you, what if you don't speak the language? What if you don't, I mean, I, I heard the two big words that I heard were, I heard vulnerability for them. And when someone's vulnerable, they often protect themselves. They often don't share. I don't think you said this word, but I heard humility on your part. That's hard, especially when you got like battleships behind you, backing you up, I think, or maybe it was easy for you. So was it easy for you? Was it hard? How'd you learn it? And then, okay, how do you actually do it? If that's no, I, not, if, I don't know if, that, if I can answer that in a few minutes. That's a tough, tough one. But I think it comes basically down to having basic respect for each other. And I don't know if I can point to a, specific time when ha, the light bulb went off. I think I certainly understood that a bit from my, my upbringing, you know, what I saw from my, my parents, uh, you know, treating people with respect and dignity, you know, that the worth and value of every human being is there. 
going into it with the notion that you know they matter. I'm no better than anyone else. It may even been reflected a bit in what I said. Now, although I don't think about it when I say it, but you know, what did you call me? I mean, who Kip Ward is is not embodied in being a general. Uh, I'm an individual person, and I would like to think that were I a retired army general, or a had I gone into you know law and become a lawyer, or had I been a a governmental official in some civilian capacity, or I've been in some commercial enterprise or activity, uh, that the person that I am would, would be there. To be sure, you know, my experiences have caused it to be channeled in certain ways, but the basic piece of you know, treating people the way I'd like to be treated is there regardless, I think. And also, and knowing that we are here, for me, obviously, you know, you know, my faith is a big part of that. And we're here to serve others uh, and not be served. And I would often say that uh, as I would go into additional uh, positions of command, uh, take command of a of a division. I commanded my division, and my thing to my soldiers uh, there was, hey, you know, yeah, I'm not here to for you to serve me. I'm here to do my very best to do things that will allow you to be all that you can be, to help create conditions for your success, uh, not. For me to be served. It's what can I do to cause my fellow human being to be successful? I would often use in my formation. I even did this in uh, in the private sector. Once I retired from the military, was in the in the private sector, and I say how wonderful it would be that when each of us came to our place of duty, come to come to work, I came that if every one of us could know that we're depending on our teammate because by what their actions are accomplishing, I'm more enabled to be better at what I do. And if each of us does that, the power of that elevates the entire entity, the entire organization in ways that are just unimaginable. And so I would often, I would send out these things I call ward sends, little little messages, you know, three or four times a week. And it would do two things for me. One, determine, you know, are the things that I'm saying to the command, are they penetrating within the command so that everyone knows what Ward has on on his mind, what's what he thinks is important or not, so that one, I can get feedback from that because I would see them in my uh, you know, goings on and my being around and being about. So, hey, uh, what do you think about my latest Ward sense? Oh, sir, no, I agree with you, but so you said this, but, but is this what you really meant? But it would cause that interaction to occur. And one of them was, what have you done today to make your teammate better? You know, not what has someone else you know done for you, but what what have you done? And if we're all doing that, you know, the power is so so. You know, when you come to work, you know, okay, today my job is to do something to help my teammates' job be better realized. And if we're all doing that for one another, that's elevating the entire organization, the entire entity, in ways that otherwise would not have been the case. And so, as I you know, would lead, and my, my part of my leadership. I guess I won't say philosophy, but I think my actions were to try to create an atmosphere so that every person was doing what they did because they know that by doing what I'm doing, I'm helping my buddy. I'm supporting my buddy. I'm helping my buddy do her or his job more effectively and to be uh, better realized. And when that's happening, our common objective, what we've also all seen is realized to a higher degree. I'm hearing you talking about you respecting others, you serving others, you listening to others, partly to you're creating that community, that uh, these norms around you. And I think also that gets people to open up and 
feel supported and therefore give their best. I heard you talk about the people in your command or the people that you work with in your organization. I'm also curious because I'm a lot of, there's a lot of people who are doing environmental things and they tend to talk to other environmental people. I want to talk to the, the polluters. I want to talk to the people who are not, that I want to influence. I believe that they want clean air, clean water, clean land, and maybe it's not something that they notice. So are you also doing these things with the people outside your organization? Is it, I mean, partly so that would be, say, in Palestine or, or Bosnia. I presume you're talking to the people that you want to take over when you're gone. There must be also people who oppose them. Maybe they're terrorists. How does it work with people outside the organization? Is this, I don't know if I'm asking questions that are answerable, I don't, but well, I certainly want to learn from them. <laughs> well, you know, clearly you know, everyone doesn't see the world as you see it through your lens. And so for me, I think firstly, there are the, your allies, to be sure, those who have some common perspective of, of where we want this to be, and you interact with them uh, in ways that hopefully causes your actions to complement, support, reinforce, in some cases maybe lead, but lead things that are also important to them. So that these things are working in harmony, if you will, there, there, there's some synchrony, some synchronization of the effort as we move forward. And then beyond there, you have those who would be opposing what you do. And how does that happen? Well, when you have a force, if you will, that's moving forward in a way that in spite of the opposition, the force that's moving to reduce, to neutralize or to to uh, cause to be irrelevant, that negative side of it is where you want to go. So I don't think you'll ever get 100% unanimity. I think the, the thing that you want to have is enough congruence of, now call it the main effort. So that congruence of the main effort and those things that are being done in support of an objective that is more agreed upon rather than less agreed upon when it comes to serving the common good, the good of those who are impacted. When you have enough energy in that direction, even though you're going to have those who would be in opposition to it, it won't be irrelevant, but it won't stop the furtherance of the positive piece of it. None of it will happen overnight, but the, the idea is to cause the momentum to be in a direction that is achieving or that's moving towards achieving the goals that are at the center of what's being thought by the greater majority uh, with respect to the purpose that you want to achieve. And so uh, sometimes it will happen just by the example. Sometimes you'll get some converts and sometimes you'll be has some outliers that will remain outliers. Mm-hmm. And, and I won't say you just have to live with it, but I think you have to understand that even though you have those outliers, they're not stopping the momentum that you're achieving. And, uh, and that momentum will be greater than those who are in opposition to what you're doing. When you say momentum, am I understanding you right? That it, I mean, you're creating a process. You, you maybe know that the goal is not, it's not like you're going to get peace for all time. Am I right that you're focusing on, on a process, setting up ways for people to work together, relationships and norms that, that people can act on? Is that- That's correct. That's right. I mean, it is a process. It, it is something that's over time. It's going to one of the things that uh, I used to talk about was the notion of you have a change and there's something that's expected instantaneously. Well, that's just not the way things happen. Things occur over time if the process that's in place is a process that makes sense for where you're going. And so you won't get it immediately. 
But if you create and set up the sort of process, the sort of procedures, the mechanisms that have enough buy-in by folks who are like-minded, if you will, and like-minded because they also have a belief in it, because by doing so, they see something that's that's for themselves, uh, that's enhanced, but importantly, something for those with whom they care about is also being enhanced. Then you get that momentum that occurs. Uh, and even if you get a naysayer or opposition, it may happen, but it won't stop the momentum. It won't stop the progress that you're being made to achieve that ultimate objective, those ultimate goals. As a leader, I'm hearing in you also a sense of reward. Like this is something that you really like yourself. And that that probably, what's the word, infects or like becomes contagious for the, for your organization. And you, you were commenting, I think we hadn't started recording, that you were watching my TEDx talk. And what I'm saying, for me, I don't have to steward. I get to steward. It is a great honor to serve these people. I may never meet them, but I'm not flooding their backyard with garbage in, you know, in Philippines and Indonesia. And it's, I'm picturing you in some really war-torn place or someplace that needs some serious rebuilding and there's a lot of conflict. It sounds like it's very difficult. It sounds like the odds are against you. Nonetheless, I believe that there's something in your heart. You mentioned faith. You mentioned the relationships you have with the people around you, but I'm reading that you don't want the situation to be as it is, but you're glad that you're there that in service of others. Am I reading that right? And that, that as a leader, that's one of the things you start with. Is this right? Uh, Josh, I think you have it there, my friend. Uh, uh, for me, you have to think that you can, by your being there, you can make a difference and not because it's you, because something has been in, embodied in you. And again, uh, you know, I do take my faith very seriously. And so I see it as, as not me doing it. What I'm doing is on behalf of or what the behest of or because of something greater than me. And I'm just I'm just an instrument, if you will. And so being there, even if it's only something uh, that could be done uh, in some small way, there's a wonderful, 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 uh, you know, I, I guess, public service announcement that I uh, don't see it, see it very much much now. But when I first came back from overseas after nine years, I saw this little TV commercial and it was a grandmother with one of her grandkids walking along a beach and a little, I don't know, a little girl, a little boy stops and picks up a, you know, I guess it was a starfish and puts the starfish back in the ocean. And the grandmother says, oh, Connie, you can't save all these starfish. You can't make a difference. And little Connie says, yes, but I made a difference for that one. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and, and if we're all doing that, yep, it all can't be done. But if we're doing what we do, I mean, I'm in the right to this day, I you know, mentor program, you know, work, working with some young, you know, young boys and, uh, and trying to, you know, be an example to them with respect to what they can be, as opposed to in a circulatory environment that they find themselves in. So you do what you can for those for whom you can do it. And by doing that, you're making a difference. And that's something that's uh, I think I'm committed to. And uh, just as in those places, uh, you look at devastation. Wow, this is this is huge. This is huge. But are you doing something? You're making a difference for someone, some activity, some entity and that in and of itself. And that's kind of the point of my notion of a team working together. If we're all doing that for each other. And the, and the synergy of that does make a difference. So even though your single act, you may you say, well, in the grand scheme of things, but if we're all doing our single acts, 
then that is making a difference. And so uh, we all do our part and collectively it makes a difference. And I hope this message gets to really spreads throughout the sustainability stewardship community. It's very uplifting. It's very forward looking and it may not be, it may not lead to perfection, but it feels like everyone does. It's going to lead to the best chance of everyone doing their best, which is all we can hope for. Yeah. And I, I'm going to segue there, even though I would love to keep asking you about your background to the environmental part. And uh, is the environment something that matters to you? Is that something that you focus on or think about much or act on? Yes, not to the degree that I know it's certainly your your calling, uh, your cause. But to be sure, it does matter. Uh, the environment does matter. I mean, I've seen I've seen things uh, where the environment uh, has been uh, where we haven't safeguarded it. It has led to has led to instability. Uh, if you take look back at my uh, my old command uh, there in in the continent of Africa, uh, you know the conflict that exists between uh, the the herders and the farmers. You know as the lands are shifting and as you know arable farmland is being impacted and as uh, herders don't have grazing land, so how that creates creates conflict because of how those shifts have occurred. I was I looked at the the Rift Valley area there in Eastern Africa and water levels that when I first saw them, oh, now 20, 25 years ago, I was back there the last time, maybe about four years ago now. And you can look on the side of the canyons and see how the water levels have, so, and all that impacting. So the environment does, does, uh, I am concerned about the environment. I am concerned about, you, you mentioned the, plastic paper uh, plastic bags and whatnot uh, uh being a one uh, country and continent and the leader made a decision to stop using those things because of how they were polluting uh and just everywhere and whatnot so and impacting so yeah it, it does the environment does i do think about the environment i do so you mentioned seeing things in east africa and oh man it really calls to mind some of the images that i've seen of and and I'm also curious, was that, did it start there? Were there things earlier? Like wh- when you act on the environment, what comes to mind? Like what images or, or history or? Well, I, I guess there, there are some basic things. Uh, as a young guy, I'm sure there were hurricanes and whatnot. That obviously we didn't have the ability to cover things like we do today. So there were things going on. I'm sure that I just wasn't aware of then because just the world's ability to understand what's going on in other parts of the world was just not what it is today. And so, uh, I mean, there were things that, you know, growing up in, in the mid-Atlantic in Maryland, you know, mm-hmm. you know there were four distinct seasons. Uh, I mentioned, you know, my, my folks, you know, and so I, I worked as a young guy. I raked leaves in the fall. Mm-hmm. I cut grass in the summer and I shoveled snow in the winter. I kind of counted on that as my little my little routine, you know, uh, to get my little spending money uh, all through my uh, you know, early teenage years and even leading into college before I got my first semi kind of regular job uh, when I was in, uh, I guess my senior year in high school. So these things you know, kind of produced things for me because I, Hey, uh, summertime comes, I'll be able to cut some lawns and because grass is growing and, and, uh, and I can you know, have a few extra you know, dollars in my pocket and then fall. I, I, I'll know I'm going to be raking some leaves and that's also generating a little bit of income. And then I'm shoveling snow in the winter and, uh, doing various things, uh, like that, uh, and I can remember uh, as a young guy, uh, you know, the, one, one of the best things I ever thought was, was you know, after cutting that lawn, going around to and, and picking up a water hose 
and drinking some water from that uh-huh. hose. I mean, cold water. I mean, it just t- tasted great. I mean, uh, I, I still have images of, you know, of that, you know, uh, I wasn't carrying around a, you know, a bottle of water. I think I, I'd go to the faucet, turn on the faucet and coming out of this, this outside faucet, out of this garden hose was a fresh, cool water and uh, it just tasted great. And, uh, I don't do that anymore. I don't. I don't drink water out of out of outside hoses any longer. I mean, it's. I mean, it's. It's all different deal today, obviously. But it's things like that uh, uh, that uh, used to occur uh, that I would see, and uh, and even and even today, you know, I, you know, I'm probably not as conscious of it as I ought to be, but I am conscious enough to, to know that uh, hey, you know, you know, you know, quick showers. You know, I was in and deploy. You know, learn how to take. You know. One bucket of water, you better figure uh-huh. out how to do it. You know, <laughs> soap up and rinse off with that with, with, with that one, you know, bucket of water. You know, you I mean, and then, well, many times just a half a bucket. You know, uh, so, so conserving things, so you're, you're not wasting things. You know, uh, as an example, so it, it's I call them little tactical things that go on all the time uh, with respect to what we do, and even today, you know, some of the basic things that I do, uh, you know, with respect to you know trying to you know you know, be as as I, now I don't know if I can if I you know g- generate you know one bag of trash every eighteen months like you I'm not, probably not that you know <laughs> but uh, uh, but I, I would do be concerned about that and so that you know things we can can we recycle things so some basic things like that paying attention to certainly see it as I've traveled around the world in various climes and climates and seen some differences so yeah it's kind of it when you said we don't do that anymore about you were talking about the water and I'm, I'm picturing this visceral, like just down to your core of how good it feels after maybe, I, I presume in the summer it was really hot and, and just goes down really well. And you said, we don't do that. Is that because it's now all bottled water or because we don't, it's not safe to drink the water or is it that people can't afford to pay you to mow their lawns anymore? <laughs> <laughs> the, the price went up. <laughs> price went up. Yeah. yeah. No, it, I think, you know, that the, the notion is, uh, yeah, you think about you know, you know how safe is the water? You know, mm-hmm. we have to have filtered water now. You, you question it. Didn't think about it. You know, when I was a twelve-year-old, I mean, I just my, my assumption was that hey, this is fine. This is mm-hmm. fine. There's nothing. I mean, this this is this is good. It was it was provided. You know, being you know my age, I can even recall my grandparent visiting them in various places and having wells. And, mm-hmm. and using well water because we didn't have water supplied by some municipality. Uh, and some of uh, where, in fact, one in particular where, where they live, I didn't think about it then. Uh, now I think about it because of what I'm certainly come to understand and know what has gone on with respect to water supplies uh, mm-hmm. around the world uh, here in the United States and how they've been degraded. And so yeah, it's a combination of, of that. I think, hey, is it really safe? And, and candidly, uh, you know, the alternatives weren't that great either. I mean, it wasn't as if you know, if you if you wanted it, this is this was, this was your source. But again, the source was a trusted source. And, and so it became just a part of, I won't call it the habit, but that was the practice because it was, that's what it was. And it was okay. It was fine. And something has happened to kind of erode that, to change that, to, to alter that, to cause it not to be what it was then, uh, to question it. And mm-hmm. so, and then when that happens, uh, so then you, you turn to different alternatives from bottled water to other things, uh, even filtered water, so that even though it's, you know, you, you, you're doing things, differently because of what's been called into question because of you know what you've been exposed to it's weird that you, to call 
water, just water, a trusted source at the time when you were 12, the question of whether you trust it or not probably wasn't like the, the, to think one day you'll have to know something is trustworthy, a source of water, as opposed to the default would be just to think that the default would be, it wouldn't be trustworthy. You'd have to have someone certify it. Yeah. What have we done? What are we doing? If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So I invite you at your option to think about the, what you described, like the, the dependability of the seasons and the, that feeling that the water would give you, and then, but also that we're losing it to think of something to act on those feelings that you could do. It could be big, it could be small. This is in service of others, but it's not for saving the planet. It may achieve that in some way, but it's to act on those feelings, to do something. And then I'll ask you, if we come up with something, then I'll ask you how it went in a separate episode. But it has to be something new, something you do yourself that is not asking others to do it for you. And something that is a physical thing, not just reading or learning but something you actually do. Most people at this point don't have anything in mind yet, but it takes a little back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's some, some room uh, for you know, specific things that uh, I would do. I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, the season that we're in right now uh, with the coronavirus has, by definition, impacted in a way. I, I've listened to your uh, podcast, and I know about the flying piece of it. Now, uh, I haven't been on an airplane now, and uh, as someone said to me, I'll say, yeah, this time last year, really, that mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would go now almost, I guess, 10 months without flying. I said, yeah, you got your mind. That, that, <laughs> that, 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 that's what I do. Well, I haven't done it. I haven't done it. And frankly, I haven't missed it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because of where we are. Uh, I walk uh, as opposed to doing some other things that might otherwise. And, and for me, you know, staying physical, being physically active uh, as opposed to being sedentary has been. You know, I'm thankful that I can I can still do certain things. I can't do all that I used to be able to do. You know, the, you know my, my my years now and my uh, jumping out of an airplane for a whole whole lot of times. So it wasn't jumping out of the airplane; it was, it was landing. It was hitting the ground uh, mm-hmm. that has caused me not to be able to do all the things I used to do physically, uh, uh, knees and and back and whatnot from those uh, multiple 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 impacts with equipment on and big oh. loads hitting the ground. You know, and sometimes the wind taking me in directions that I wasn't quite prepared for. So, uh, but, uh, and so some, some things I can't do like I used to do, but there are many things that I can do. And obviously the environment has, the circumstances of the day has impacted that to, you know, to a, to a degree. Uh, my wife and I, you know, we've, we, we've probably done a lot more, you know, you know, cooking in the last seven, eight months than we used to do as opposed to, you know, going out and eating out, you know, that has its different perspectives as well when it comes to, business community. But uh, we've certainly made a very concerted effort to, with respect to, uh, you know, just with you know, plastic, uh, just we've become very conscious of that now and generating 
generating things. And so when we do make a little small uh, outings to to get provisions, if you will, we do it in a way that hopefully uh, is being very cognizant. OK, you can't produce too much here. And then so our recycling has certainly been in, enhanced, increased. We, we doing things such as that. I don't know if there are other I haven't I, I really would have to give it some really substantial thought to come up with something that's uh, yeah, I can start doing this. Not a big thing, but uh, but doing this, you know, I certainly don't drive as much as I used to drive mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, probably see no no big need to go back to all that either at this stage you know, at this stage. So. So I heard a few things that you're that you've done that you found rewarding, whether it was intentional or your deliberate choice on your part, like the not flying or the cooking more, the recycling more. But I wonder if you could take one of those things and make a smart goal, you know, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound to further to continue one of those things or to augment one of those things. Cause I'm not looking for creativity or, or like the most amazing thing that usually comes. I find that when people start doing something deliberately, the next thing they come up with on their own, but if they don't do the first thing, the second thing never appears. And that's why, to me, the, the size or magnitude of the first one is not really that important, mm-hmm. although some people do come up with really big things. Could you come up with something, could you take something and make it specific and achievable? What, what, I, what I'm trying to do is, what's coming to my mind real quick here is what ones I've heard you talk about. And as I look at you know, my own experience and uh, what would I do, how do I not do that? But really the one that, let's say, yeah, I think I, we already determined that the type that, that the amount of flying that I used to do, I'm not I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just I'm just not I'm just not doing that anymore. And there's really nothing compelling me to do that other than thinking that it's something that I ought to be doing. Whereas mm-hmm. not doing it, you know, I'm just as fulfilled by not doing it. I mean, there's nothing that I haven't done that I needed to have taken an airplane to go do that is cause me pain or heartache or, you know, boo-hooing. I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely fine. And in fact, I feel, I feel good about it. So I'm, I'm fairly certain that, uh, you know, the amount of, of flying that I used to do, I want to never, but I have no expectation to go back to that mm-hmm. at all. I did a lot of it, you know, when I was uh, uh, on active duty and uh, I just have no desire or, or, you know, or expectation that I need to go back to do that. So, uh, and, and especially given the various alternatives that now exist for doing some things that you thought you needed to take an airplane to go do that you don't have to do these days. So that's one thing that I think uh, I can certainly look at to say, uh, you know, as opposed, even if we get into a post-COVID environment where I might be flying, I don't know, three or four times a month, I may say, okay, I'll never take more than two flights a year. Now and so I'd be very deliberate in what I would choose to have to take a flight for, mm-hmm. uh, and otherwise I'm not going to do it. And uh, I think that's something that I could certainly uh, meet and feel real, real good about. You know, not doing it. Uh-huh. <laughs> then how? Say that was something you committed to, and I, I don't want to oblige you, but how long? And you've been ten months so far. If we had a second conversation and I asked you how has it been without flying, how long would it have to be? For you to have been, for you to, you know, if it's like tomorrow, that not, that's probably not far enough out. Like, how long would it be before you could say, Josh, it's been X amount of time and I would have flown in this time or, you know, that you could say what the experience of, of grounding yourself would feel like. Or maybe, maybe it would be 
only a certain number of times in a certain, I don't want to say zero because it would be your choice. Yeah. I would say easily, uh, you know, next spring, I'd say, okay, I, I still haven't taken the flight. And uh, next spring comes around and I get there and say, yep, I'm still fine. I think based on what I did and how I did it, you know, I, I did things because I thought I, I needed to do them. It was expected of me. Was it really necessary? And did I call it or did my doing it, you know, enhance, enhance my being? Or is there an alternative to that that would create the same, same result, if you will, the same impact? And I think I think there are. I think there are. Uh, like I said, you know, these the pandemic has kind of brought some of that to, uh, you know, a a reality in ways that may not have otherwise done as well. So, yeah, I'm certainly not glad that it took a pandemic to realize that. But I think it's certainly something that has uh, impacted it. Yeah. The way you're talking about it now is so different than people talked about it a year. If I'd suggest, if I'd said, is there anything you care to do a year ago? I, I doubt you would have considered this. And if you had, you probably have been like, are you, what you said earlier? And the way you're talking about it now is what I'm hearing is it's about values. It's about what you want. It's about not it's a responsibility, not saying, oh, I don't have a choice in the matter. And I'm, I'm very curious to hear how that evolves, develops now. It's now with a little bit more deliberate choice behind it. Yeah. If I'm hearing you right. Yeah. I think without question, uh, experience matters. So after we stop recording, I'll, if it's okay with you, we'll schedule for something, a second call in the spring if you're up for it. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Experience matters. I think uh, going through things impacts how you feel about going through things again. I probably, to your point, I probably uh, I think about things today a lot different than I thought about 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Because I think experience does matter, uh, and and having gone through something impacts what it is you go through the next time. When you when you see something that has an impact on you, it influences your reaction to when seeing it again, or influences your actions and attitude with respect to not wanting to see it again or wanting to see it again. So how you help shape that, how you help define what that would be, where to come around again, or to prevent it from coming around again. I think to be sure when it comes to leadership, that is such an important piece of it, you know, that experience factor, because it does influence your actions and either defining a scenario that is a more pleasant one that you would want to have occur, or one that you saw that was very unpleasant that you want to keep from occurring again. And unless you've Reading gives that to you in many aspects as well, you know, reading things. Uh, but in, in some cases, uh, having experienced it, uh, it can be very defining in how uh, you act or react to what's now presented in front of you. And then how you cause that to guide what you try to be in influencing uh, in the, the behavior of others that, that you would lead uh, moving forward. And so I think... Uh, you know, experience does matter, and it, and it helps it helps define those actions, those attitudes, those thoughts. In my case, uh, as a soldier, those things that I would issue as you know as a task, uh, because uh, if, if we do it this way, I think our outcome will be more likely to occur in ways we want it to occur. Because I've seen it done that way, and that way just didn't work, as an example. So I think the notion of experience is also important there. And, uh, and, and that helps define 
what you do. And after the experience is what I tell uh, the young, young kids that I talk to in school, read. You know, when, when, when you read about things, it, it takes your mind to places you haven't been. And through that reading, you then gain some perspective of what it is that exists. And that helps that perspective, hopefully, in a positive way, also will help guide your actions and activities. One thing I'm taking away from what you just said about experience is, if I'm not too presumptuous, is to my strategy with the second part where, about the environment is to give people an experience that they might not have had otherwise. So mostly I want to bring people from leadership in whatever area to sustainability, stewardship, the environment, so that people mm-hmm. who are listening to the podcast hear what is not, not nearly as much as I'd like to hear it, you know, leadership, supporting others, serving others, respecting others. And all of what you said, I can't summarize it in a few words. And I want people to have the experience so they can share the experience so people can hear your experience with the commitment that you made. Mm-hmm. And then also for it to get back out to the other community so that people can see it's not just there, it's all going to fall apart and you're all killing babies if you don't act. And, but it's also what I found in it of joy, community connection that comes from service. And sometimes, you know, maybe I'm not going to see the Eiffel Tower but the flip side is that actually very deliberately when I was not flying, when I went, in the first year, I was thinking, I want to get other cultures. Well, in New York, I can just take the seven train and I can be in a place where there's no English signs to be seen. Or I can spend time with Francis Hesselbein, who lived through the prohibition and the depression and talk about another culture. Yeah, It wasn't what I was missing. It was what I developed in myself the skills to replace those things with. And that's, I had that experience. I want to give that experience to yeah. others. Yeah, that, 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 that's satisfying. And uh, it's enriching, especially when you do that. And those with whom you shared that come back to you and let you know how much it meant to them. And that reward, if you will, is probably the most satisfying reward that that you can have when someone says, because of what you said or did or, or that I saw, that caused me to do that or this thing, and I'm, I'm better off for it. I've been enriched by it. And uh, that is absolutely uh, self-satisfying. And uh, it's, it takes the place of so many other things that you used to think may have been what brought you satisfaction. And you say, wow, that really wasn't what it was. It was, it was knowing that the impact that what you did, said, uh, demonstrated, impacted positively uh, the actions, attitudes, accomplishments, achievements of someone else. Sometimes you know it, many times you don't. But if you go around, go about doing what you do in a way that that's what your objective is, then I think uh, that gives you a heightened degree of satisfaction as well. And the good news is when you when that becomes the essence of who you are, then you're doing it subconsciously. You don't even know it. And that's when you say, well, I'm just going to keep on being who I am because uh, that makes a difference. And this whole thing coming together, you know, because uh, in the end, you know, it's it's a grand scheme of things. This is only a minute in time. You know, mm-hmm. there's a you know, old poem out there, you know, you know, life is only a minute, you know, 60 seconds in it. And when you have it, use every minute of it, you know, and hopefully you use every minute of it for the good of, for the good of others. That's kind of when you when we're gone. That's all you're gonna have. That's all you're gonna have. So that, that's will be there. That that's that's the legacy, if you will. You know, what others have said about 
how you made them feel and how your actions or thoughts or encouragement caused them to be a better person. I, I realize we're a couple minutes over and um, may I indulge some, I'm going to indulge in one last question of what you just said, of that feeling of reward of coming, someone coming back to you and saying, you've helped me improve my life. But a lot of people want to see the Eiffel Tower. They want to go to Machu Picchu. Can that reward really add up? Can that be greater than getting to eat food at an Italian restaurant in Milan? Yeah, I'll tell you that, that that's sleeting because that one has to be replaced by the next greater one. It just it just it's fleeting. I mean, you, you know, that becomes kind of insatiable. You know, uh, okay, I did that one. Now I got to do this one. You know, well, when does it end? The one that's the one that's there that you know it gets bigger only because of the magnitude of it is is what we just finished talking about. I think. It pains me to close, but Kipward, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Good to meet you, my friend. Good to see you. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the commonality that we share with, with uh, Frances Hesselbein is, is evident. She is one of our nation's true, true icons of leadership because of how she causes other people to feel because of knowing her and not just feel what she causes other people to be because of who she is, what she is. So, yeah. People keep asking me about the pandemic. Haven't we learned a lot from it? Haven't we reduced our pollution? I point out that we polluted less, not out of deliberate choice or stewardship, but to save ourselves for our own health and out of authority, people telling us what to do, neither of which will last. If we want the results to last, we have to choose to act. We can use the experience to learn from, but we have to do so deliberately. No matter how much we experience that not flying isn't the deprivation we learned to expect, it's easy to revert when our social media feed refills with pictures of Bali and our competitors restart flying to areas that we wanted market share in. Kip is choosing deliberately. I believe action by leaders like him helps others to follow. That's what makes people like him leaders. Besides this commitment of his, and who knows how it will turn out, his training and service reinforces these traditions that I'm increasingly learning from and trying to bring to you, not just from Kip, Service, learning through a service-based tradition like the military, evangelism, conservative politics. Besides learning from them myself, the leadership that's available, the traditions and so forth, I see these areas as sleeping giants regarding sustainability and environmental leadership. I think people there love clean air, clean water, clean land as much as anyone. I think institutional environmentalism, to coin a term, I think you know what I mean by it, is hitting them over the head with judgment, telling them that they're wrong, they're killing babies, things like that but I think they care as much as anyone. When attacked, people defend and disengage. I hope to engage. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.